Chicago. It's Startup Hype Man, the podcast. What's up, everyone? My name is Raj Nation, founder and chief pitch artist at Startup Hype Man, where we help startups not suck at how they pitch themselves. How? By making sure their audience sees them not as the best, but as the only. And this podcast is the only show where you will hear from leaders in the startup ecosystem sharing a piece of their heart, their mind, and their story on how they are charting their own path, growing their companies, and choosing not to play the game, but to change the game. Before we get going, hit the subscribe button on your podcast app so you never miss an episode. Also, head over to StartupHypeMan.com and subscribe to our Point of View letter, where we share original articles, insights, and resources all to help you become the only of your industry. All right, get your popcorn ready and get hyped. It's showtime. Ladies and gentlemen, making his way to the microphone from Chicago, Illinois, and currently residing in Austin, Texas. He is the co-founder and CEO of Posty. Please welcome Dave Fink. That was awesome. <laughs> My childhood fantasy was, yeah, just realized. <laughs> Thank you for that. He is Dave Fink, as I mentioned, co-founder, CEO of Posty. Posty is a data and technology platform with the mission of making Yes, listen to this. Direct mail, sexy again. They're bringing direct mail back the way JT brought sexy back, helping direct mail behave as dynamically as the best digital marketing channels that you actually have quantitative uh, oversight on. They're able to do that for direct mail. Now, over the last five years, they've taken a small seed round and been able to be profitable year over year, every single year, scaling to a point where they've got customers and industries from big box retail to automotive, to telecom, to financial services, all the way from mid-sized to multi-million dollar publicly traded companies, more and more people are realizing the value of Posty. And in their journey, and this is our season 18, season uh, premiere episode. So I'm really excited to talk with Dave today about this specific topic and, and kick off the season with this specific topic, because in Posty's journey, They've learned one thing really, really well, and that is the most effective channels to scale your ICP, your ideal client or your ideal customer persona or ideal uh, customer profile. Dave, right off the bat, why is this on your mind and why is this important to you? Yeah, well, look, um, I grew up in the age of the internet and uh, started my career in, you know, kind of the consumer internet space, both working on marketing technology solutions and also direct to consumer brands that got their advantage from kind of understanding kind of this, this evolution in you know, direct to consumer marketing and technology. And, you know, and, and you know, really what kind of drove, I think, innovation and efficacy in, in that world was the you know, understanding of, of data um, and how to leverage that data to gain insights into who your ICP is, um, who the various segments within your customer base is, and then to be able to leverage that knowledge to uh, much more efficiently um, you know, allocate marketing budget, storytelling, brand development, um, and customer retention. And you know, we've now lived through 20 years of, of innovation, education, awareness in, in digital to the extent where when, you know, I, I think, you know, folks like, like, like I started in this industry, you know, the, the, the marketing saying was always like, you don't get fired as a CMO for buying TV. And now we're in a world where you don't get, you know, fired from, you know, from being a CMO for buying Facebook and Google. And, and what that means is those channels have become really saturated, really challenging, um, they certainly still have uh, a tremendous value in the marketing stack, but you no longer can, you know, develop, you know, you know, world-changing, you know, brands and 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 scale just focusing on those those um, kind of emerging channels. It's it's time to think about what other channels you can bring into your media mix, and um, and 
and you know, at the same time, I think we've all been, you know, spoiled with this idea of being able to leverage data measurement, real-time deployment, um, you know, rapid and dynamic, you know, iterative testing. Um, and all those things are possible in direct mail. Uh, they just, you know, the channel has been, you know, big and impactful for many years, but has been lacking innovation on the technology and efficiency side. And, and um, kind of, I think just the, 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 the kind of shrinking ceiling in in social and search and programmatic that we've seen over the last six seven years, uh, you know, encouraged encouraged you know uh, my co-founder Jonathan and I to really take a look at how we could unlock some of the um, uh, how, how we could unlock the power the full potential of direct mail in a way by leveraging kind of the learnings in uh, technology software and execution. Uh, that we've that we've invested twenty years on the digital side for. We are going to dive all into that topic a whole lot more, and how anyone listening can effectively scale their channels uh, to or, or scale their use the right channels <laughs> to scale their ICP. I should say. Before we get into that, let's learn a little bit more about David, the person. Now, Dave, before we hit record, we were just catching up, and you mentioned you started your career actually working in Chicago. Uh, in social services, in fact. I'm curious, that experience, and you mentioned you were going into different um, government housing communities, meeting with people there. What did that experience teach you about the human condition and about human behavior? That, that's an awesome question. Um, and it's been, it's been so long. I, it, it's just not, it's not a topic that, um, that many people ask about anymore. I think early in my career, they asked a lot, um, you know, of, of those kind of questions and, and how you, you know, learn from, I had a degree in psychology and, and thought I was going to go and, and get a PhD in clinical psychology and work with it, with people. Um, and, and kind of migrated into world of, of ad sales and, you know, in, initially, and, and I think that the transition in, um, was fairly natural for me. Um, I, and I think it's just because I always had a, a deep interest in understanding people and um, with a heavy focus on communication and rapport building, which I think is necessary, whether you're going to be a counselor and trying to work with, um, you know, uh, you know, challenge populations that have challenges and, 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 um, and oftentimes, you know, um, those individuals are a little bit guarded and, uh, the best way to, to be able to provide, you know, help or, or value there is to, is to, you know, build authentic relationships. And I think that's, that's true in, in sales for, for sure. And, and I do think that that, you know, that translates across, you know, running a business as well. Um, you know, I, I sell um, every day and I certainly build rapport every day. I'm not doing it directly to clients um, at, at, you know, uh, on a regular basis. We now have, you know, uh, you know, our own enterprise sales team and our own enterprise success team that gets the fun of that job. Um, but I am selling to every employee in our company, right? Helping them understand uh, the mission, the value that, um, that we provide, um, I'm helping them um, get motivated to continuously invest in their careers and think about, um, I think, uh, the hours they spend on their jobs is more than just a job. Um, and, and I think if you talk to, uh, you know, the various teams that, that I engage with here, you know, I, I love, I'm, I'm a student of the game. Um, I'm not the biggest fan of reading things like sales books or pure leadership books, um, I gravitate more towards, you know, behavioral economics and social psychology and industrial psychology. And I think maybe that like early kind of love for education and research and understanding, um, you know, with a heavy focus on, on communication and rapport building, um, I, I think that that applies to, to pretty much your entire life, every aspect of it, but certainly to, um, to you know, um, I think leading you know, a fast growing organization of, of, you know, um, diverse group of people. And do you feel that that approach kind of speaks to, you know, you've written before, especially like in, even in like your, um, your bio section on your LinkedIn profile about how you're really driven by the intellectual pursuit more than, or at least as much as achieving things. Do you feel like that's really what's coming through here is this idea of the intellectual pursuit? I, I do think so. Um, I, I'm, I, I'm painful, painfully aware of it. I, I certainly think that um, if you know, if I was purely chasing you know financial wealth or some yeah you know, very 
tangible, um, you know, uh, you know, core outcome. You know, the question comes up all the time from investors and you know potential um, you know candidates that we're looking to hire. Like, what's your exit strategy? And the answer is like, wait, wait. like, I, not something I think about at all. What I think about is how we build something meaningful, and uh, and I think that ties into. Um, look, I think that I think that's probably the the number one um, motivating factor, right? I I, I want to add value to the ecosystem. Um, I want to you know build something and and lead something that's mission driven. I want us to help make um, the industry and uh, you know that that we're choosing to to focus on um, you know the advertising world um, you know a, a, a better place and and help um, help brands. Uh, you know, find value, help marketers have an easier time with their job. Um, you know, I talk in terms of, you know, when we, you know, with our sales teams and our, our success teams, you know, when we walk into a quarterly business review with, with a client, like I, I want, I want us to have swagger. I want us to walk in and I want us to, to not just come in with so much knowledge and, and so much value add, but make it fun and engaging so that, you know, everyone from the CMO, maybe even the CEO of some some of the you know, mid cap companies that we work with, you know, to want to be in that room because they're going to learn something, they're going to be entertained, they're going to enjoy the process. Um, and I think that ties into yeah your question of it's the intellectual pursuit. It's you know it's certainly the journey more than than the outcome at the end. Um, and I, I look, I hope that 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 translate through to, to to my team. And 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 I I think that I think that if you you know. Um, you know, we're sitting down one-on-one over coffee in a, you know, intimate conversation with one of our employees. I, I think that that's how they would, um, you know, talk about um, the the tone of, of Posty and, and the leadership that, that Jonathan, my co-founder and I kind of, um, uh, you know, choose to embrace. Um, I, I certainly would hope so. Well, you know, as a startup hype man, I'm all about the swagger. And I, I think that that's a great element to have. In fact, when we uh, for our demo coaching clients, when we do like monthly group reviews with them, we always kick off those meetings playing some rap song. And then whatever like the theme or like the main lyric of that rap song is, like the meeting starts with everyone has to go around and say like whatever win they had in the last month, like in the context of that rap lyric. So like, uh, you know, Drake's recent song, Way Too Sexy was like everyone had to go around the room and be like, I'm way too sexy because I just closed an enterprise deal two weeks ago, you know, and it just makes it a better experience than like, even, I mean, I think starting with wins is great, but if you can add a little bit of flair on top of that, it makes it something people like, you know, just have that like added like fun in being part of your ecosystem. I, I, I mean, I love it. I love it for several reasons. One, like music is like the ultimate, like emotional, like artistic medium, right? Like the, it's impossible not to like feel something when you hear, um, you know, music of various you know, genres, um, easiest way to pump you up. I, I was a very mediocre high school hockey player. Um, but like my favorite moment was like when we took the ice and at a home game and we got to pick the soundtrack and then blast in the stands and, you know, Friday night game. And we were, yeah, we were, yeah, you're pumped. Um, and, and, you know, I, I love that stuff. It, you know, certainly, COVID and, you know, we're, we're um, acting as a fully distributed company, um, like many companies right now, you know, has made it harder to, I think, you know, to pull a lot of that kind of culture and emotional um, connection, um, uh, you know, vibe off, um, you know, it's, it certainly couldn't have been done before there was, you know, teleconferencing, um, but it does put a lot of pressure on us to think about ways to kind of create that same energy and that fun. Um, you know, we, you know, we, we are spent definitely spending more time as our company gets bigger with, with just the number of individuals and people not getting to interact one-on-one as intimately as they used to. Um, and, you know, we look for ways to, you know, to get people together, um, whether it's teams or all hands, um, you know, now that I'm in Austin, uh, I'm pretty, pretty much obsessed with, with both mountain biking and wake surfing. And, you know, uh, a while ago we got the sales team together and, and rented some wake surf boats and everybody got up and we were, you know, playing music and, um, just hanging out out in the sun together and, and doing some bonding. And, and embarrassing ourselves by trying a new sport that most most of the team hadn't tried before and getting in the water and whatnot. Like that stuff really matters, right? And then if you can figure out how to translate 
that that kind of energy and fun and um, you know confidence into your you know your relationship with clients and your product development and your marketing and how you're amplifying your story. Uh, you know, I, I, I think there's there's definitely opportunity to 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 create um, something that's beyond just your product or beyond the revenue that you're generating. Let's use that as our transition into the main topic today, which is the most effective channels to scale your ICP. I think in order to appropriately understand that in the context of your journey, can you just briefly talk through how Posty got started in the first place and maybe just expand a little bit more on that very, very brief introduction I gave at the beginning of the episode? Sure. Um, so, I mean, the setup is, uh, you know, prior to Posty, you know, 15, 16 years, um, kind of oscillating between um, building marketing technology, always with, you know, kind of that quantitative performance mindset, um, you know, data-driven test and optimization, measurement, kind of rinse and repeat, and then also building um, direct-to-consumer brands that, you know, reach, you know, oftentimes levels of tremendous scale, hundreds of millions of dollars a year in revenue, um, mostly direct-to-consumer, at least that's how they started. And um, we're challenging, you know, big monster multi-billion dollar incumbents. Um, and, uh, and, and data was everything, knowledge was everything. And then, and then finding channels that you could actually execute on that knowledge, um, which started out very limiting in you know, 1999 and 2000 and fast forward to you know, 2011, 2012, 2015, with you know, the growth of, of social and search and programmatic and targeting and email and SMS and all these quantitative channels, like it became you know, easier or more possible than ever before. Easy is not a fair term. And that's the reality is I look a lot older than I probably am now because it, it hasn't been easy. Um, reason I, I bring that up is that um, the six or seven years prior to launching Posty, um, I was um, you know, one of the founders of a tech studio in Santa Monica called Science. And we invested both in marketing technology companies and, and built and launched and incubated them, but also direct consumer brands. And, and, um, and we worked with certainly plenty of brands that um, had um, reached a certain level of success, companies like Dog Decay, Dollar Shave Club, et cetera. And um, we rode the, certainly the, the, the coattails of the emergence of social and, and we got there faster than most brands um, got there. And we were able to take advantage of um, kind of all of those, those kind of um, those, you know, data-driven tools. And, and so, you know, you take like Dollar Shape Club and everybody knows that brand because of the funny videos and the brilliance of Mike Dubin's, you know, storytelling, but that story had to get amplified somehow. And if it was just straight to TV, nothing but TV without, you know, any kind of measurement, um, that would have been a really expensive way to build a company and, and build a brand. But they also had YouTube, which was a quantitative channel. And they also had, you know, the distribution on, on Facebook and search and programmatic. And you put those things together and, and something really special happens. You um, we started science, it was about 2010, 2011. And um, by, you know, the time 2016 rolled around, you know, those same brands that had gone from zero to in some cases, hundreds of millions of dollars of revenue with millions of customers, um, you know, we're now, you know, freaked out because, you know, they've kind of, they, they you know, grew on top of Facebook. They were big. It becomes harder to, to find more growth, the bigger that you get. And they also had some, some headwinds, which were everyone, you know, every brand, no matter whether they were a challenger brand or an, a major entertainment studio or automotive manufacturer or CPG brand was pumping do ad dollars into social and their marketplaces. And so the more demand that goes in, the more expensive the supply becomes. Um, and, and it became this kind of asymptotic path to profitability where the more you spent, the less profitable your customers were, the, the higher your CPAs would go. And um, and it just something needed to give. And so for us, um, you know, it, it, we kind of looked around and said, like, what are other big, massive, scalable channels that could be run in parallel with our other, you know, quant channels? And in online, there really wasn't anything. You know, we, you know, um, Snap did not really have an ad platform at that point. They were just kind of, you know, kind of figuring things out. TikTok didn't exist. Um, and so you know, for us, we started looking offline and DirectMail was a channel we had some experience with years and years ago. And it had three things that we loved. It had um, scale 
everyone with is, is reachable through direct mail. Everyone that lives in an address is, is reachable, right? Over 270 million Americans, uh, about 160 million households. Two, there's quality data out there that you can use in the same kind of predictive way um, as you do through you know, building your email you know, CRM segments or your Facebook lookalike models. And, and three was most brands had kind of some kind of identity mapping where, where there's direct measurement. You know who you're sending a piece of mail to in an ad campaign, you know who's coming and converting at your POS or website. And now you could, you know, you could measure just as you know, cleanly, if not more cleanly than, um, than, uh, than I'm digital. And so we got really excited and we set out to just use the channel as marketers and really quickly learned how painful um, and slow moving and kind of lacking, um, you know, sophistication um, and efficiency uh, that that the channel was. There just hadn't been any innovation on the the marketing technology side of it. And so for us, it was this idea of like, well, you know, I wonder if it's possible to do what, you know, uh, Twilio did for, you know, SMS or the Trade Desk did or, or DoubleClick did for, you know, programmatic or Coteo did for retargeting and Facebook did for social and Google did for, um, you know, for, for search, I wonder if it's possible to build that technology layer to make um, the direct mail channel behave more dynamically. So that was the path. Um, it, it really was um, that authentic and organic of a story. So given that, let's, if, we, if we think about like how you were getting that off the ground, and then if you, if you, as you think about how that may even apply to other companies, what was your process for determining the right ICP in the first place? Because I feel like there's a million different directions you could have gone with this. A hundred percent. And look, that's still something that, um, you know, a, a kind of mid growth stage company like us struggles with. There's only so much you can do at any given time, um, sanely and, and quite frankly, you know, effectively, uh, you know, when we started, because we, you know, grew up in that kind of challenger brand space. It was a space we knew really well. We understood, you know, how those businesses, you know, launched, how they scaled, um, kind of when they struggled. We understood kind of the mindset. It was just natural for us to start there. And so both kind of the the way that the user interface um, was designed, um, kind of the initial campaign types that, um, you know, that we, um, you know, made possible to execute on the platform kind of all aligned with kind of what these fast growth venture backed, um, really sophisticated challenger brands, um, you know, needed. And, uh, and so that, that's where we started. And, and very early on, you know, we would sit down and say, Hey, you know, what, what if, you know, you know, you had the same level of sophistication and, and tools to, run direct mail, just like you run search, social, programmatic, um, 101% of, um, of, of individuals that we engaged with um, said 100%, like, like that, like, absolutely, we would totally experiment with that, get us off of Facebook, you know, we're feeling that pain, help. And, and like, you don't get better product market fit than that. That doesn't mean that people will pay for it or, <laughs> um, you know, or that yeah. you'll immediately deliver results. So there is like that um, curve, but, but with regards to, um, you know, substantiating that there is a pain point, there is a need and that the, the, that sector in the market got it, um, that happened very quickly. Um, about a year later, we kind of jumped to the opposite end and started engaging with the biggest, you know, enterprise companies. Um, you, you mentioned in, in um, kind of the opening, um, you know, multi-million dollar publicly traded companies, you know, we're talking about, you know, you know tens of billions of dollar market, you know, um, yeah, uh, market cap companies, um, you know, fortune, even we work with some of the fortune 50 companies. Um, and we got there pretty quickly because the tools that they need are exactly the same as the challenger brands need. You know, if you think about the way Facebook worked, you know, initially, you know, they, they, they didn't you know, invest in, in marketing technology. They didn't want you know, measurement. So everything was as big brand dollars. And then they very quickly learned that they could leverage machine learning and big data science um, investment to actually drive performance, that they had something special. And I think the first category that they catered to was um, app installs. So that was kind of the wild, wild west of, of you know, venture dollars were just flowing into any app with, you know, that met certain KPIs and Facebook 
proved that they were a really efficient and um, scalable way to drive app installs. And that was kind of the light bulb went off. I'm like, oh, well, we could probably work with e-commerce companies and direct-to-consumer brands and lead gen service providers. You know, and um, and so, you know, in, in our world, um, you know, we we kind of have this bookend approach where we, you know, we sell and service, you know, the enterprise, you know, um, brands that are oftentimes very deeply invested in direct mail, but still, you know, running a pretty, you know, fairly, um, you know, antiquated approach just because, not because they're not smart or capable or they wouldn't want to run something more sophisticatedly. There just was never a platform. And so for them to be able to um, now leverage software and technology to test and optimize and activate audiences differently than they were able to do in the past, you know, I think it's very powerful and we're seeing tremendous results there. We're certainly still catering to the fast growth and even, you know, I mean, some of the, you know, the brands that we work with in the challenger set are now, you know, $50 billion market cap companies on NASDAQ. Um, and then others are, you know, series A and series B funded companies. So um, that's, that's happened really quickly. We, you know, we've only been a business for five and a half years. Um, and, um, and, you know, uh, I think it's, it's, um, it makes us feel good to know that we've built something that that does add value to pretty much the full marketing ecosystem out there and, and we got to just keep getting better at telling you know our icps our story letting them um you know recognize the the value that we drive and then um servicing those accounts you know at the highest level well i actually i think what's interesting even in if you think about that going to the big brands approach like some of these massive organizations well, I don't know, maybe they're harder to like get into like, or it just takes a little bit more effort to get into initially. They're the ones who have probably had legacy spending in the direct mail category and, and probably kept seeing declining results. And, but, but if you come to them with, Hey, I can get you better results or I can, ha- I can help you actually track what what's behind that spend and, and understand the channel as well as you're understanding these other channels. I feel like because it's something they've already been used to spending on. And I think generally speaking, when we think about sales, like this is such a key thing is like, is have they already opened their wallet for something like this in the past? Because if so, they're probably going to be more receptive than if it's the first time they've ever spent money in this area. Look, it's a great, um, I think it's a great um, perspective and, and pretty darn spot on, um, quite <laughs> frankly. Um, so we think about you know the the kind of the the lay of of the land in, in kind of one of those x and y axis qua, um, kind of four quadrant um, views and and it's really simple at the at the highest level we, we go down deeper into you know verticals and 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 deeper data but at the highest level it's um, you know is a challenger brand um, or, um, on on one side of the the axis or is it an enterprise brand. And then are they currently deeply invested in direct mail or are they on the opposite of the spectrum? Have they never done direct mail at all, right? And, and you can look at those four quadrants, right? So there's certainly one quadrant that um, tends to be in a bit of an, a quicker sell, um, but that has much more variance in, um, you know, kind of their, their trajectory on the posty platform. And that's, you know, not doing direct mail, challenger brand. And, and we love those brands, A, because like they look and feel a lot like many of the brands that we've launched in the past. So that we, we, you know, hold those, those, um, those, you know, um, challenges they have and opportunities that they have close to our heart. Um, but you know, they're brands that are typically run by very small, very smart marketing teams, highly quantitative data driven, and, um, they get it in a heartbeat. Um, they feel very comfortable leveraging the software, but as you said, they haven't opened their wallet for this channel yet. So it's still, a, you know, hey, we hear direct mails, you know, crushing it for many advertisers is going to work for us. And so those brands tend to, to definitely be more like start, stop, right? Like Facebook's easy, like I said, like nobody gets fired for buying Facebook um, and nobody gets fired for buying branded search. Um, but yeah, there are other channels like direct mail that can be a make it or break it, um, you know, channel for you. Um, but does take some investment and consistency. And so those brands aren't quite there on the complete opposite of the spectrum. There are, you know, the capital ones of the world's yes. Yes. Spending hundreds of millions of dollars year over year in direct mail. It's probably their biggest channel. Um, 
It is highly effective. They've been doing it for decades. And, um, and you know, th- those obviously are harder brands to break into because they have systems that have worked for them. But there's always, they're also, you know, very, very savvy and recognize there's always ways to find, you know, incremental um, performance. And, um, and, and so those, that those sales cycles may be much, you know, much more challenging, but when you, you are able to onboard, um, you know, one of those accounts, they tend to be much more consistent and, and businesses need both of them, right? Those businesses, um, you know, the enterprise clients, you know, come on and they're difference makers with each one that onboards they, you know, year over year, like when you think about like net dollar retention, like doesn't scale the way that a digital native that gets their, you know, series B and finds tremendous success. And all of a sudden they're growing, you know, their, their commitment 400% year over year, you know, sometimes a thousand percent year over year. Um, you need, you need both. You need diversity, diversity in your client book. Today, we're talking about this idea of ICP growth and channel scale. Let's also talk about product scale for a second. Now, listen, everyone, creating an app is easy, but making it stay afloat on the market is definitely not. In fact, about four in five, launch, four in five apps launched in app stores get deleted after a single use. Harsh, I know, but true. So how do you thrive without a profound product strategy experience? Well, luckily, you're not doomed to failure. You just need an experienced partner that can help you all the way through. And I'm proud to bring to you now a new partner of Startup Hype Man, the podcast this season, and that's Mikito, the team of design, software development, and product strategy experts who have built over 150 successful products for startups and enterprises. Yours might be next. How do you find out? Well, maybe just talk to them and join forces with Mikito. I'm excited to have them as a partner of the show for this season. And so to find out more and learn if your product can scale up and to be successful like some of the other greats that have come out, just go to mikito.com slash hype man. That's M-I-Q-U-I-D-O dot com slash hype man. Mikito.com slash hype man. M-I-Q-U-I-D-O dot com slash hype man. Today on Startup Hype Man, the podcast, we're talking with Dave Fink, co-founder and CEO of Posty, and our topic is the most effective channels to scale your ICP. So let's talk about this channel growth now, Dave. Um, And and I really want to actually learn first is like, so you you get the ICP down. What have you observed? Like, and maybe maybe, maybe you made some mistakes as well you can speak to, but like, where do you see companies go horribly wrong, either in their segmentation, either, well, not so much on their segmentation, but where do you see them go wrong on determining the channel or channels they should be pursuing? Oh, that's a great question. Um, um, Look, I I think uh, where folks went wrong years ago is slightly different than, than maybe where they go wrong now. um, But the principles are still, still the same. So when, you know, when I would run marketing teams, I uh, would empower you know, uh, you know various team members to constantly be exploring new channels, looking for additional ways for you know to to be growing. And everything started with this idea of allocating a certain percentage of your monthly or quarterly media budget to to testing. And testing um, you know falls into two buckets. It's you know testing new strategies, tactics, creatives, offers, ads, cadences in your existing channels, and it also is testing new you know um, new new channels altogether. The, you know, the, the kind of the biggest, um, um, uh, I think, mistake that I would see is someone would show up in, in a meeting and be all excited about this new channel that they wanted to test. And they'd walk through kind of what they learned and what the cost model looks like and how we onboard and what tools we need. And, and then, you know, um, you know, someone inevitably, inevitably would ask, like, awesome, like, how scalable is that channel? And they and they answer you know oftentimes would be like uh, let's say it's it's not that scalable and you'd be like well let's say like we invested all this time and energy to 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 kind of test and and in ideal world like it proves to be like a really efficient channel for us like how big could it be and they're like oh not not that big um, and and that sometimes it's just frustrating because if you're like hey there's a channel that lines up really nicely with our business and we think we could be highly efficient um, you know it could be a highly efficient part of our media mix. But there's no scale behind it. The answer is like, well, why would we put you know all that time, energy, and budget at risk if if there's no scale? And so you know there is. It's always kind of a, a you know I always kind of push teams and individuals to think about this idea of like 
um, opportunity cost as much as you know budget cost. Uh, you don't want to be spending a ton of time on something that, even if in the best case scenario, you know, does perform successfully, um, doesn't have scale and there's no path to scale. So, so that's one mistake on the um, on the you know executional side of things. The 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 yeah, you know, there there are two I think buckets of mistakes that 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 I see all the time. You know, one is that you know you know, you go into a new channel and you throw some budget at it and you you know you kind of test something and it, there's no starting hypothesis. So you know hmm. maybe it's directly measurable. Maybe there's all sorts of cool like tools and levers that you can pull to to test and you like you put a bunch of time and energy and you allocate some budget and you throw it out into the world. And then you start collecting data and, and, and the answer is like, was it success? Or the question was, was it successful? And the answer is like, I don't know. And it's like, why don't you know? It's like, well, I don't know. How, like, how are we thinking about, you know, success and defining success? And, and that happens all the time. We're, we're going a mile a minute. We get excited about something new. We have so much pressure. Like we're trying to get to our next round of funding. We're trying to get to our next quarterly earnings, um, you know, report, whatever, um, you know, whatever that, that kind of KPI is that, that makes us run around like crazy people all the time. Um, you know, if we don't take a minute to like catch our breath and actually like a scientist, right? Like you asked earlier, like, right. like, like, is there, are there parallels to like, studying like social psychology or industrial psychology and, and business. And the answer is like, absolutely. Like you can't just go into like an experiment with like Reese's monkeys and like, and like have this cool experiment and then not have any idea or like framework of what you're trying to like uncover. Yeah. What are you trying to measure or even like study in that process? Yeah. Yeah. Like it's great that like you touch here in their brain and they do that, but like, yeah. like what, like what were you trying to, to figure out? And, well, and um, that's sorry, and that's that's important too, right? Because if we take that you know monkey experiment example, right? Theoretically, you know, you give a group of monkeys some Reeses or something. There are actually a million different things they might do, but it's important to understand what is the thing that I'm fo- that I'm trying to get out of this experiment, not just what's everything that possibly happened. What am I focused on for the intention of this experiment? So you don't get uh, sidetracked, right? Yeah, look, I, I before this podcast, I took my one-year-old, you know, eighty-pound, you know, gave him some Reese's. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I'd be cleaning up a lot of messes right now. Um, but uh, you know, took her for a walk, and um, we're doing a mediocre job at best training her, um, and uh, and I just don't think like a dog trainer. And so, like on this walk, like she's strong as an ox. She pulled me down the street, and she, you know, she's we're, we're working on leash manners, and she's like pulling and like, I'm yanking back at her and saying like, no, no. And, um, and I'm like, I'm like, oh, well aware that like, like, what am I trying to teach her? Like hmm. I'm teaching her that if she pulls, I pull and then she pulls again and I pull and then it's tug of war. And, and like, I'm, but like, I'm not thinking in terms of like, okay, be patient when she, you know, like slows down and starts walking without, you know, a, a tight leash, I should be rewarding her. And and, and like, I don't have all the time in the world or patience to be like the greatest dog trainer, which is probably a bit of a disservice to this wonderful creature. Um, <laughs> we do the best that we can. But but the point is like, even those little like moments, like it's the same thing. It's like, it's like rewarding positive behavior, going into it with a mission, understanding what you're trying to accomplish. I'm not trying to get her to accomplish like pulling against me or I'm, I'm trying to get her to, to think, oh, I get rewarded. You know, dad is really happy with me when I'm walking next to him versus like yanking him down the street because, you know, I saw a squirrel. And, um, <laughs> uh, and so I think, you know, again, say, say, same thing is true with, with, um, with testing. Um, the other piece um, that I think is, is, you know, a mistake that's happening less and less over time, but still happens is not, um, uh, not, um, fully embracing and taking advantage of all the first party data that we now have on our customers. Um, right. So, you know, we're collecting data every day, right. If we're a direct to consumer brand, we're seeing every single transaction. If we're, we have a, uh, an app or a website and we're an omnichannel brand, we're seeing engagement, um, site visits, app, um, behavior. Um, we could be seeing lead gen, um, connectivity. We could, if we're B2B, we could be seeing 
what content pieces, you know, someone's engaging with and how long they're spending with that content. If, you know, we're, we're tracking POS transactions, loyalty, um, you know, uh, you know uh, programs and, and average order value and cadences or intervals between, um, between transactions, like all that data, how, you know, is, is, is leverageable to understand, A, are we doing an effective job with our customer sets? B, understanding that not all customers are the same, that there are different segments of customers and there are ways to kind of get at insights into like why different segments of customers are engaging with our brands. Like there are probably multiple reasons and multiple profiles. You know, it's not just one ICP, it's multiple ICPs. Um, and then, you know, if we have the insights, that leads to better hypotheses. Like now we're like, okay, like I see these three distinct, you know, um, buyer profiles, you know, I have some questions about why, you know, what it is about our product or our marketing messaging that's either working or not working within those, where they spend their time in the world, are they commuting? Are they on, you know, on Instagram? Are they on TikTok? Are they, um, you know, are they more likely to engage with their mailbox? Um, are they, if they're commuting, maybe out of homeworks? Like, yeah, you know, are they cord cutters and should I be focusing more on OTT and CTV and ATV? Or are they still people that I should be targeting through linear? Like all those, um, those things that we used to have to guess at, we now have so many ways to collect data points and um, and and kind of uh, start with insights, and and so that's hard work for sure. And there's sometimes some costs associated with it. There's some deep thinking associated with it. Um, but those brands that are spending the time on the front end um, or partnering with channels or solutions that allow them efficiencies to unlock the power of the first party data, gain insights, create hypotheses, test, and then measure those results. Like, like that's not every channel. Um, do you get all of those checkboxes, but the more of those checkboxes you can get from each core channel, you know, the, the more in control you are of, of your business and the growth of it. So then, um, let me, I'll, let me give two questions here, um, real quick before we begin our wrap up. So given all of that, and maybe we can like, let's, let's use, you know, my company as an example, perhaps, um, when we think about trying to figure out what is the right North star metric for a specific channel, because I, I think those go hand in hand, right? Like what's the channel, but then what are you measuring against for startup hype, man, our most successful channel is actually doing, um, partner workshops. So we team up with another organization and we do one of our pitch workshops and we have, you know, four or five of them that we do based on the, the, the type of the audience. And on my side, I've created these. I don't have to change them. I mean, I know how to make slight modifications in the moment, but I don't have to recreate slides every time. So there was an upfront time cost investment whenever I first created these, but then each time I do it, that cost continues to go down or it's exponentially less because I'm not recreating it. I'm just relaunching what I've done before. And again, knowing how I might need to improv in the moment. My, um, so I'll, I'll stop it there. Now, from your assessment of just of that, right? What would be the right metrics, what the, uh, either metrics singular or metrics plural? What's the right North Star to be going after if that's the channel uh, that, you know, that we pursue at Startup Hype Man? Sure, sure. Um, I will answer it. Um, but first, I want to just draw a parallel to something you talked about earlier, which is like we talked about music, right? And yeah. you're talking about, um, you know, rap in, in, in particular. Um, you know, Rap and R&B and pop even um, has done this brilliant thing over the last, well, for, 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 for decades, but, but it became more popular like the last probably 10, 15 years, which is collaborations, mm. right? Like yep. think the about artist feature, yeah. Right. <laughs> but, th but, th but think about that, right? Like that's exactly what you're talking about doing, which is, Hey, um, whether it's, you know, trying to, you know, record label trying to launch a, a new artist by putting him or her on tour with opening for a major headliner, um, or whether it's a collab, you know, collab on, um, on an album or sampling, you know, it's mm -hmm. pulling together other people's audiences in order to um, find, you know, efficiency and amplification, more conversation, um, you know, and, and that's like, I just think that that's absolutely brilliant. Influence Which I don't know, by the way, on that point, because I, 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 that's a lot of what my inspiration was, like looking at how hip hop does it. I don't know how the rock world never figured that out because like, it, it's so funny. Like 
an everyday occurrence is like Jay-Z featuring Kanye West. But like you never see, you never saw Led Zeppelin featuring Aerosmith ever. And if it did happen, people's heads would have exploded. <laughs> I would love to see that. Um, you didn't see that, but you did see covers. They, yeah, they, covers. Yeah, but not necessarily right? like true. Like they they co-created a song together. You know, no, that that, did, that didn't together. happen a ton. Um, there were back in the day, like Dear Little Secret is a lot of even those bands. Um, you know, had um uh, writers that were writing. You know, yeah, they'd borrow each other's talent. Yeah, yeah. De- Desmond Child was writing. You know, Love in an Elevator, and then would write like Who Let the Dogs Out and and Cross <laughs> and La Vida Loca, La Vida Loca, um, and um. And and would carry over, um, you know, certain things across genre and across, audio, uh, you know, artists and um, and work with producers that help, you know, create sounds a L- little bit more subtle than that. The, the promotional co- um, component, um, I, I don't. Yeah, I mean, I don't know, rock what why that didn't happen, but they, they did have to, you know, they always had tours and, you know, I. I yeah, I was into like all you know rock and southern rock and things like that. I remember going to like yeah. farm aid concerts and World Series of Rock and Monsters of Rock. <laughs> and, you, know, pro, you know, be able to sell out you know huge amphitheaters by having you know, you know, Poison and Metallica. Yeah, yeah, you put a lineup together. Yeah, yeah. But I, I guess in like the shoe song creation or album album release, you don't really Different. see that. Yeah, in rock. no, that it's definitely a rap and hip hop and R and B um, strategy that I think was just you know brilliant yeah. and built you know community and culture and all that. Um, and then so let's bring that, that back we- to the North Star metric. Then, like, so okay. taking, taking this hip hop strategy, if you will, yeah. um, what what's your read on like the right metrics to be looking at then? Yeah, look, I mean, I um, th- there's there's um, there's you know, core metrics and their secondary metrics, secondary metrics, I think about as being, you know, um, higher up in the funnel that are, um, that lead to revenue generating actions, but, um, maybe, um, you collect more of the data and so you can make optimization decisions quicker. And then there's, you know, and, but ultimately it all feeds into a conversion metric, right. And, and, and a revenue generation metric. And we're in business, like, um, you know, having a good click-through rate doesn't um, pay salaries, you know, selling products does, right? Um, and so um, I think you, you always need to start with, with you know, the, the, the deepest in the funnel metric, which in your case would be, you know, I, I don't know if you call it bookings or conversions or yeah. signups, um, and then kind of what that, that, that average revenue per, per transaction looks like. And then eventually, like, is there a K factor a referral um, component that comes from certain accounts? And is there a lifetime value built in where they're signing up for, you know, um, you know, longer term engagements um, or repetitive engagements, scaling their business? Like that, that's got to be the core metric for sure. But then um, then, I, you know, I would kind of turn it back around in you and, and say, like, well, what are some some metrics that you that are leading indicators for um, whether someone is likely to engage with you? Is there a lead form? Is there downloading a white paper? Like, are, are there deep? Yeah. And, that, and that's what I think is, is like, I think the revenue conversion is obviously like the most important metric, but it's like, what is, that's an output. And then it's like, well, what, what do we have control over or what are the inputs we can actually have influence on? And I think, and the, one of the things that I learned over time was if the partner is not willing to, you know, every now and then people for like data protection purposes say, well, no, we can't share, um, you know, we can't share the email addresses of the people who signed up for your workshop. And I'll yeah. say, I can't do this then <laughs> because yeah. it's not, I, I, like you're getting my expertise for free. Yep. So my currency then is, is contact information. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, look, I, I would, um, I would not look at that whether you get email addresses or not as a, um, as a metric. I mean, I think that's built into your deal, right? Like either that's that's binary, right? Like either you're getting those that you know um, those email addresses or the contact information, or you're not. Um, if the answer is yes, you're getting them. Then, then, a, then a KPI could be how many email addresses are you getting? Could be even higher in the funnel. Could be um, engagement. So, how many people stick around through the entire webinar? How many people, mm-hmm. um, uh, you know, comment? How many questions you get? The more questions you get, the more you know, the, the, the more valuable, um, or the more likely that someone on that, yeah, you know, in that session um, ends up becoming a true lead. Um, you know, I think you you can look at your your you know 
building your own lead funnels, which is like, hey, if someone signed up for free content, um, you're going from free content to um, expensive engagement is, is probably a pretty big gap and void. And so if they if it's someone that signed up for free content, is there something that you can get them to sign up for maybe one-on-one that is a free assessment? And then from the free assessment, maybe you're selling them some digital, um, you know, light engagement, a paid newsletter, a paid um, series of webinars, et cetera, but that's relatively light. And then from there, it's the upsell into um, you know, your full service packages. Sure. Um, I mean, I, th- I think that the, um, thinking about, um, you know, uh, how to lubricate, um, you know, that lead funnel. And so it doesn't work. Some businesses like, it's like, look, I, there's just not capacity or efficiency to be able to, to kind of spin up each of those things. Um, but in other businesses there are, and, and, you know, there's no shortage of companies out there that built, you know, digital programs or text-based programs or, wrote books and all of that were part, what was part of like monetizing, um, you know, your, um, your, you know, ICP, you know, addressable, you know, market, um, at a deeper level than just, you know, um, through, you know, a full, a full, um, you know, final, you know, hefty engagement. Um, so, um, I, I don't know that that, that that answers your question exactly with regards to the KPIs as much as it does, you know, t- think about like how you can build more monetization, um, you know, a, um, a more kind of curved, um, um, you know, path to ultimate, the ultimate transaction you're aiming for to be able to offset some of your marketing costs along the way and build deeper engagement step-by-step. Well, and I think what I've learned, what I learned over time, especially over the last two years, because I previously used to just say, yeah, let's, you know, let's do it, you know, but I didn't have like a conversion funnel beyond the event, right? I just thought, okay, I'll show up, I'll talk. Some people in that may raise their hand at some point afterwards and say, I want to work with you. And yeah, that did happen, but I didn't really have, I had very little like control over what happened after the event. And so then what I was able to start doing was run the event run a follow-up sequence and through enough times now, I know the majority of follow-up booking like meetings happen on the second or third follow-up email because people I think are just busy and it takes a couple of reminders. And each of those follow-up emails is providing some element of value in and of itself. It's not just saying, hey, come talk to me. And then I know once someone takes that meeting, the conversion timeline is oftentimes two days or like to convert to a full paid customer, uh, you know, a, a pretty, you know, well-paying, you know, service package is oftentimes as short as two days, but really no more than seven days. But I, I, I didn't previously go about it with that sort of like understanding of the entire process. I just thought, yeah, give me a stage. I'll do my thing and it might work. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, look, and and that's that's you know we talked a little bit about that, right? It's like having your hypotheses, and and that was a hypothesis, yeah. hypothesis. Um, that that's fine. And then from there, you're like, okay, well, what what's next? Like, what are the building blocks? Um, and next, maybe you know, maybe gives you the tool to be able to engage with really big audiences that won't give you you know customer customer information, but that you have a funnel from that event into like, hey, if you like the content here. I have this, you know, free email exactly. newsletter, or I have this free, you know, uh, three 15 minute um, pre-recorded um, contents, um, um, you know, series that is going to tackle X, Y, and Z. And then, and then you get, you know, you start getting people leaning in and choosing to give you their, their contact information. Um, I think, yeah, that, that certainly makes sense. I mean, look, you can look at things like retargeting where if they'll let you host um, the session on an iframe when people, you know, sign up, you can probably drop cookies and then, and retarget them on LinkedIn and programmatically. So there, there are definitely things that, that you could, you could, you know, um, continuously do both on the demand gen, as well as, you know, lubricating, um, you know, your conversion funnel over time. Some of it's exhausting and some of it is, um, some of it's not, and you got to kind of, um, you know, kind of map out priorities, you know, each quarter and, and, and just chip away at a little by little. Let's go ahead and begin our wrap up. First off, Dave, where can our listeners find you and learn more about you and about Posty? Yeah. So, um, yeah, we work hard to publish great content on posty.com. Um, so P O S T I E.com. 
Um, uh, there's also, you know, if you find content that's interesting to you, um, there's, you know, there's a lead form um, where you can request um, a meeting with one of our team members or a demo. Um, best way to reach me is, is LinkedIn these days. Like that, that's kind of my communication platform of choice. Yeah, there's built-in messaging. Um, it's, it's, it's a really, really easy um, way to, to communicate and see who I'm engaging with. And you can get to know a bit more about me um, through, through my profile as well and seeing who my connections are. Um, so yeah, those are the two best, best ways to go. Dave, who's one person who you want to give a shout out today? You can't say team. It's got to be one person. It could be a colleague, a mentor, a friend, a coworker, an advisor. Who do you want to shout out? Yeah, um, for, for sure. It's my co-founder, um, Jonathan Nedenrip. Um, he and I had worked together for about six years at, at Science prior and um, you know, uh, just had a ton of respect for him. Um, there's no question, um, you know, he and I have you know, started this company collectively together. Um, you know, we've grown, um, together the last, you know, not, yeah, probably 12 years as colleagues, um, as friends, as mentors for each other. Um, he's, he's awesome. Um, I, yeah, I spend as much time with him, um, as any other, um, colleague and, um, he's, he's just incredible. Let's give our top one or two lessons or takeaways for the listeners based on our discussion today. I'll go first and I'll toss it to you. Our topic today was the most effective channels to scale your ICP. I think the lesson I want to share is kind of bringing it back to, you know, in understanding the ICP in the first place, figure out where you fit in your customer's wallet or in your industry's wallet. If you know how they spend already, it's going to make figuring out how to make your thing not seem so big and scary, not seem so big and scary. Dave, top one or two lessons or takeaways. Yeah, no, I think I think um, that that's step one. It's like you, you you have to understand not just who your ICP is, but if there are uh, multiple segments within your ICP. So think about ways to um, you know capture insights around um, your existing customer set. Um, or if you're a new business, figure out very quickly how you can um, how you can capture customers and learn as much as possible early on, um, so you can start understanding what se- separates them from kind of the greater addressable market out there. Um, and then two is you know any any um, look it, it starts with you know I, I think a hypothesis around your business and why you exist, and I think we illustrated why Posty exists, um, and then that carries through to your your marketing. And your growth initiatives, which is you got to start with a hypothesis so you know, um, you know, when you actually capture um, data on the back end, whether something um, that you you tested was successful or not. If you don't start with uh, with that hypothesis and are mindful of what you're trying to prove or disprove, um, you know, how can you possibly know whether something you did was successful or not? My final question, which is how we end every episode on this show, fill in the blank entrepreneurship is blank. I think entrepreneurship is a, is a constant journey of personal growth. So why do you, why do you say that? You know, I, I don't think entrepreneurship is any different than like raising a child um, in so much as there are things that you know, uh, maybe there's a general framework of how you launch and build a business and how you, you know, take care of, of a human, but you know, every human, you know, is different. I have two kids. They are um, similar in some ways. They are dramatically different in other ways. And I've had to learn how to engage with them, how to add value, how to coach them, how to mentor them, how to protect them um, in ways that um, line up with um, their own personal growth trajectory. And entrepreneurship is the same thing. You start with kind of a seed of an idea um, and, you know, and, and, and a company is, especially, you know, a startup or growth company is, is kind of a, a living, breathing organism. And, and, it, and it is so much so because it's the people as much as the product. And so as you hire new people, as the kind of, as you onboard new customers, as those customers are, are like customer um, relationships are led by other people, um, you, you, you know, you're constantly learning and evolving. Um, and, and for me, like, I, I just, I think that's why there's, there's nothing like I'd rather be doing with my personal career than, than being an entrepreneur, because it is opportunity to learn and develop and challenge, um, and, and change quite frankly, and, and grow, um, you know, every single day, um, 
so I, I, that, that, that's been my experience anyhow. Entrepreneurship is a constant journey of personal growth. He is Dave Fink, CEO of Posty. Dave, thank you for joining today and kicking off season 18 with us right here on Startup Hype Man, the podcast. Thanks for having me. This is an awesome conversation. I hope you're listening to this value. That's a wrap on this one. Shout out to our guest once again for sharing their story with us. If what you heard impacted you, do one of three things. One, let our guests know. Reach out to them directly. They love hearing from you. Two, leave a rating and review on Apple. Or three, simply hit the share button and share this episode with one friend who you think would benefit from hearing it. Catch our full episode archive at startuphypeman.com slash podcast. And if you want to make your pitch not suck, reach out to us through the website. That's all for this week. We'll catch you next time. Raj Nation out. Believe the hype.